Welcome to Market Proof Marketing, the podcast from the industry leaders at Do You Convert, where we talk about the current and future state of marketing and online sales for builders and developers across the globe. We're not here to sell you, we're here to help you and to try and elevate the conversation. Is there a topic you'd like us to cover or a question you'd like us to answer? We'll do it. Simply send an email to show at doyouconvert.com. All right. One of the best parts of having a podcast is that I get to talk to really insightful and interesting people. And one of my favorite organizations has always been Zellman and Associates back from when I was at Heartland Homes and we participated in the survey. And I got to talk to Ivy a couple of times. You can go check out our interview with her, I think a year and a half ago now. And today we have Alan Ratner, the Managing Director of Equity Research at Zellman and Associates with us to talk about all that they know. Because, you know, it's a crystal ball and you just have to look at it properly. There's no, <laughs> no. Alan, thanks for joining us. Appreciate you taking the time. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, hopefully my crystal ball is not uh, not too cloudy today. Yeah. So I think the most interesting place to start, although it's not maybe an easy place to start, is where do you think your perspective on the market as a whole, the new construction market, might differ from others in this space? Or the unique viewpoint that you think you have at Zellman? Yeah, I, I think our viewpoint 18 months or so ago, before rates really you know, started their upward trajectory, before the Fed you know, kind of made it their mission to curb inflation and, and obviously the, the housing inflation that we've seen, was that we were you know, somewhat in a different camp than I think a lot of the industry and a lot of Wall Street bulls that housing has been dealing with this you know, structural undersupply of, of inventory. And, you know, one of the interesting things we always like to think back on is 2018, 2019, before the pandemic began, when new home sales were, you know, five, 600,000 a year, home price inflation was two, three, 4% a year. Nobody was really talking about a housing shortage back then, right? We were building far fewer homes back then than we are today. And then it really wasn't until the pandemic arose where you had a lot of what we viewed as temporary drivers of demand. Uh, obviously, the big pullback in mortgage rates was the biggest factor, but and that drove in a lot of you know, kind of secondary home buyer activity, whether those are investors built for rent, single family rental, second homeowners, third homeowners, fourth homeowners, et cetera. But the pullback in rates at that moment, I think, really created a lot of momentum around transaction activity that gave people a perception that, hey, we're just massively undersupplied as a country and we need to build more and more and more to curb this level of inflation, where yeah. the reality is it was really low rates that, that kind of you know created a lot of that, that demand, which uh, we view as more cyclical than specular. You know, kind of fast forward the last year or so, obviously, the move in rates has been the catalyst to, towards slowing things down a bit. But, you know, we kind of view normalized level of, of demand for new housing, new, new home building, you know, in the million two to million three range. And that's going to include single family and multifamily. And that's based on a lot of demographic analysis we've done. That, that's based on, you know, kind of a, a deep dive, you know, bottoms up analysis of headship rates and the millennials and et cetera. So that's probably our most differentiated view. We, we don't think that, you know, housing is in for a big crash by any means, but certainly rates going up has been the catalyst to slow things down and back to something that we consider to be more normal. Yeah, I think the question is around affordability and, and what are the price points of those missing units that, that are in demand well, is, is one part. Yeah, that's the key, right? I mean, you know, I think that the reality is 
you know, you could create a lot of demand if you deliver a product that's actually affordable to the masses. You know, we've got a lot of people in this country that are either doubling up or still living with their parents. And, you know, that's something that if we go back five, 10 years ago, you know, we would have thought would have been unlocked by now. We thought a lot of that was a hangover from, from the GFC. And it never really did get unlocked. And the reason being is you never were really able to deliver a product to that, that consumer that they could afford. And there's a big difference between, you know, necessary supply and affordable supply. And right now, you know, based on a whole confluence of factors, costs, mortgage rates, et cetera, you simply don't have affordability uh, in this country to, to drive sustainable growth in housing. Housing has never been less affordable than it is today. And affordability in and of itself is not enough to either you know, cause housing to accelerate or decelerate. You know, We saw housing stay pretty hot even as affordability was challenged you know, through 21. And housing has never been more affordable than it's been in 2010 when, uh, when we sold about 300,000 new home sales. So <laughs> That's not the you know the end all be all, but certainly it's hard to envision sustainable growth unless you have affordability that's at least somewhat in balance. Yeah, and the second part I think is that a lot of the people who talk about that shortage are using an assumption that 2004 to 2006 is like what normal should be. Like that's where we should have remained. Well, you know, I think a lot of people get caught in this trap of looking at the population, and you know, we're at. 330 million people today and going back 20, 30 years ago when, you know, the population was half of what it is or, you know, something close to that and you were building more, more units and the absolute, you know, number of people in this country doesn't dictate how many homes you need to build, right? I mean, it's really the growth in population, the growth in households that determines whether you need incremental housing stock or not and growth in population, growth in households has been on a continuous decline for a number of factors. So obviously, birth rates have been on the decline. Death rates have been accelerating. Uh, immigration has slowed. So all of the key drivers that would theoretically create housing demand have been moving in the wrong direction. And you know that's probably, you know, based on our work, at least. And I don't think this is a you know a big secret. You know, it's fairly visible in terms of birth rates and kind of the progression of the population. That's going to continue to slow over the next uh, yeah several decades. Yeah, and we'll get to happier stuff later, I'm sure. And not that this is happy; it's just it's just reality. And that's why, again, going back to what I said at the opening, what I've always appreciated is that the whole team at Zelman somewhat dispassionately looks at the facts and just says what they are, and then leaves it to all the rest of us to add our own emotions to that. But they're like, <laughs> here's you know just just the facts is is what we're showing you. I tried to make a joke that uh, on Twitter that went, went pretty well, but like saying that we need to build a million affordable homes is also like saying we need to make sure that every McDonald's milkshake machine is always working. Like you, it's just not, it's wishful thinking, but you're not, not likely to, to make it happen. I think the other thing moving forward is I, I saw that single family build to rent is now there, there are more starts for that than single family for sale. How do we think about the fact that all homes are shelter and the likely competition that could or will be a result of what's happening? Yeah, it's a really interesting dynamic because you know a lot of people look at the built for rent space as additive to to demand. But you know our view at least is that people decide what type of housing shelter they want to live in based on 
their stage of life, right? If you've got a family, if, if you've got two kids, you know, there's a very high likelihood that you're going to be living in a single family home. And if you are single and young, there's a very high percentage you're going to be living in an apartment. And the decision of whether you own or rent is a financial decision, right? So the first step is where do I live or what type of unit do I live in? And the second step is, can I, can I own that or rent that? Do I want to own that or do I want to rent that? Do I want to have flexibility of it? So, you know, we've definitely seen a lot of capital come into the build for rent space over the last couple of years. And I think some of that has been under the assumption that this is going to take share from the for sale market, meaning you're going to have consumers that are choosing to rent because they prefer the flexibility of that lifestyle. They prefer the lower maintenance of that lifestyle. And then there's some that are operating more in the mindset that it's going to be additive. And I'm not, that's, that's, you know, that latter argument is not necessarily one I, I would agree with. The former one, you know, I, I think that, again, it's probably going to come largely down to, to money and finances. So if the rents are, you know, significantly more affordable than it costs to own that house, then you're going to see more people renting. But ultimately, and, and higher rates, you know, certainly skew in that, in that favor. The challenge is we know a lot of these built for rent deals have been underwritten using some pretty aggressive assumptions, you know, paying top dollar for land, labor and material costs remain, remain an issue. So um, it's going to be really interesting to see how that space, um, you know, kind of matures over the next handful of years. But I think for the time being, we don't necessarily view that as as adding to the the demand picture. We think that it's somewhat of a point in time share story. But ultimately, uh, you know, probably we'll, you know, we'll we'll see that skew you know more more back in line to the for sale market, which is where it's been historically. Yeah, we could spend a whole episode of the podcast just digging into more BTR. But I, I at least, Alan, hear more stories of BTR deals going poorly or being paused or mothballed than I do. And maybe it's just because people celebrating don't want to celebrate too loudly for fear that there's going to be even more competition coming in. But despite the the negative stories I hear on the ground about how a lot of these projects are are not performing as expected or desired, or have to be canceled just because of the cost of financing changing by the time the project gets ready to go. They just had, in Nashville, I think it was the IMN conference, and apparently there's even more people coming into the space. So again, it it seems like the gold rush should be over, but it but more and more people are just now getting into it too. So it'll be really interesting to watch what happens. Well, keep in mind, a lot of that capital has already been raised and it needs to find a home, right? So if you're an asset manager and you've raised the capital. But that know, doesn't, that, doesn't that make you more nervous, Alan? The, uh, like that, that feels like, again, oh, like the problem it, of too much money floating around. It absolutely system. makes me more nervous. Yeah. And I think, you know, to some extent, that's the problem that the Fed is trying to solve right now, right? We've got a lot of capital on the sidelines that was raised at, at pretty pretty cheap uh, rates that, um you know, is looking for a home and that's driving up asset values. So I think it's really that catch 22 that unless you destroy demand, which, you know, the Fed certainly seems intent on trying to do, it, it's hard to see the cost side meaningfully retrenching and, and therefore solving the affordability equation. I mean, the other piece that, you know, I'm not, not to get too deep into the, the weeds on the, the economic side of things, but like, you know, the bulls will tell you, well, wages will grow and they'll eventually catch up and you don't necessarily need to see the cost side pull back. And, you know, that, that might be true, but, you know, that's going to take time. And, you know, until then, I think you're just going to be dealing with a lot of these fits and starts and they're going to see projects like you're referencing, you know, having a hard time. And 
probably trading hands a couple of times before somebody ultimately takes advantage of that on a lower on a lower cost basis. Yeah, it's it's the old joke in master plan development. Is that the third the third group never, in never want to be the first owner, right? Yeah, makes makes money and 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 that's yeah. I think it could right. end up being very similar. Okay, two two more general questions, and we'll, then we'll talk a little bit more about um, maybe some regional differences that you're seeing, and then we'll we'll bring in Rick to talk about some new data sources from Homebuilder Data. The question about the boomers going back to the demographics impact. There's been a lot of talk about the wealth transfer that's going to occur over time from boomers to other generations and how most of that wealth is in real estate. And I'm curious I'm, if you have a viewpoint on, on how that's likely to actually go, because my perspective is that most of the people I know, when I've asked them this question of, you know, if, if your parents gave you their home, because now, you know, they're in their forties, fifties themselves, mm-hmm. they don't want to keep that home. <laughs> and so I think that's a, a, yeah. another interesting idea of that wealth gets transferred. But if, if you suddenly become an owner of, of more homes than you need, what kind of pressure that might put on the market down the road or if, or if they'll just turn into rentals and. You know, it kind of feels like we keep getting back to the, the discussion of norm, what normalized demand is, right? To your point, if, if you're inheriting a house that you don't want or you don't need, then that house is ultimately going to sit vacant or maybe, you know, you'll have to rent it out at a lower rent rate. But the fact of the matter is if you're, if you're supplying too many homes to the market one way or another, either building more than, than you need yeah. as far as incremental demand or, or there's, you know, vacancies sitting on the, on the back end of the life cycle. That should put pressure on on pricing and rents. You would think all else equal. So, you know, what we're seeing is anecdotally, and this is not a new thing. You know, there's no question, given where affordability challenges are today, you know, the propensity of gifts and help from parents, you know, is is continuing to increase and will continue to be something that's a, a vital part of the market going forward for any you know new household that's being formed. So. You're going to continue to hear anecdotes about that. You're going to continue to hear anecdotes about, you know, boomers helping out their their millennial kids and you know buying homes for them or yeah. co-signing and things like that. But um, you know, again, I go back to sustainable growth. I'm not sure that if I'm if I'm an investor looking for kind of my total addressable market here, and and you know the the bull point on that is, yeah, a bunch of boomers are going to help out the the, the millennials buy their houses. I'm not sure that that's really a compelling bull argument in my mind. <laughs> right on the money. Okay. Here's the other one is, uh, this chart from Redfin that I'm sharing on the screen here is, uh, showing the home average amount of time that people spend tenure in their home in years. And when I got in the industry in 03, we used to spout this all the time. People come in the model home and you would say, well, especially if you were selling first time buyer type product say, Oh, yep. you know, and this is a great, fantastic starter home. Most people stay in their home five to seven years look at the appreciation that people are able to get in that first three to five years, especially in new construction. That was just kind of a, people move all the time. And ever since 2016, really, we've been averaging 12, over 12 years in each home that someone lives in. And my, my take on that is as homes become more expensive and we're, and we're financing them the way that we have, that is freezing the market. But then I've also had other people Kind of push back and say, well, I think we're just building homes that are better. But I, this is not like there's still more used homes than new homes in the marketplace at all times. Do, do you have a right. take on on why this is elongated out the way that it has, and what impact that might have? Well, I, I think you know a lot of this goes back to what happened during during the Great Recession, right? We, we saw that first time buyer, you know, really did not have access to 
to capital, mm. you know, for almost a decade, right? So people that otherwise would have bought their first house in their mid-20s, late-20s were shut out of the market for a number of reasons. You know, we know employment was really challenged for that cohort. You know, credit availability was a challenge as well. So by the time those, you know, individuals ultimately bought their first home, they were older than prior generations. They probably were a bit more affluent, you know, than typical first buyers. I remember, you know, back in kind of 14, 15, hearing a lot of anecdotes from home builders in our survey saying, you know, yeah, we're selling the first time buyers, but they're not buying a first time home. They're buying a move up home. Right. Yeah. And I think a lot of that has to do again with the, the the stage of life they were in. Not to mention, I mean, tying this back to the new home market again, but to your point, resell still 80, 85% of the market. The home builder industry really did not get back in the true entry level space until, you know, kind of DR Horton with their Express product or LGI. And that was kind of 2015, 2016. So a lot of they really coming out of the GSC were so scarred. They they wanted to stick right down the fairway, you know, the corner of Maine and Maine that still, you know, Doug Yearly and, and Bob Alan, told, for, uh, for clarification uh, for the audience, you, you feel like that was because they didn't feel like velocity or volume was the chase to be made? Exactly. Yeah, I mean, the, the way you get entry-level deals to underwrite is velocity, right? You're not going to get there through price or margin. You need to sell a lot of homes in order to make these deals pencil. And if you didn't have the credit availability for those consumers, it's hard to sell four or five, six homes per month in a, in a you know right. entry-level community that's a little bit further out in the tertiary market. So, yeah, I think that's part of it as well. And now, you know, you didn't ask this, but now we have this whole new problem, right? You've got almost all mortgage holders today sitting on a rate, you know, two, three, four hundred basis points below where they are today. And unless we see rates, you know, moving lower, you're going to have a lot of homeowners that are reluctant to give up that low rate to, to not only buy a more expensive yeah. house, but also have to take a mortgage rate that's well above what they, they've got currently. Absolutely. And I even find it, you know, I'm, I'm a relatively conservative person. And so every other home I've ever owned, I always pay a little bit more than my my monthly right. payment requires. And I have to keep Not smacking now, right? my hand and being like, don't do that. Don't, don't you dare yeah. pay a penny more. I'm the, I'm the yeah. same way. Right. I've got, you know, whatever principal I would be paying off, I'm stocking away in treasuries and getting a nice, uh, nice yeah. coupon on top of it. That's right. All right. Let's bring in Rick Holmes, the CEO of home builder data on as well. And just, uh, by, by way of transition, Alan, if you just want to give a quick highlight of, of, Actually, I'll, I'll give the quick overview. Homebuilder Data is just a high-frequency data tool that aggregates uh, website uh, users and conversion data. Rick, you probably know the numbers better than me in terms of total number of, of contributing builders at this point, but it's a lot. Mm -hmm. Getting close to uh, 100. Yep. And it's important to note that these are actual home builders and that uh, the data is coming directly from their websites. Uh, I get that asked a lot. You know, is it is it a scraping service that you're using? No, th this is high quality, high frequency data. Yeah, so that's kind of the biggest snapshot picture of what it is. We'll dive into a little bit more, but but Alan, um, you've started publishing some of the insights or, or takeaways from this data source. Obviously, you you have all the all the data you need. So, just, what value or viewpoint of this is it adding to the pie in your perspective? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's been great getting to know Rick and kind of digging into the data that uh, he aggregates. And, you know, us at Zellman, we are all about data. We love data. We publish a monthly survey where we survey 
private home builders that aggregate up to about 20% of the national new home market. And we're asking them on a monthly basis about their order activity, their pricing trends, their costs, et cetera. But you know, one of the things that is very apparent in the industry is the, the decision to buy a house is often you know weeks, if not months, or even years in the making. And I think that back in the good old days, you could track just people walking into the model homes as a pretty good indication of where demand is. But um, you know, the reality is, um, you know, both home builders and consumers have kind of shifted the way they've they've you know been shopping for homes today. You know, builders don't advertise in the, uh, the the newspapers anymore or the billboards they're they're pretty yep. much allocating almost all of their advertised spend online and on their websites and if you go on home builder websites you know some of them are, are pretty darn impressive in terms of what you could do on there take freaky tours of homes and talk you know talk to sales professionals and you know certain builders have given data points as far as people actually buying homes site on scenes just everything done through the website so this is the direction the industry is moving in so i think that um you know, to be able to track that website traffic in real time through all stages of the process, whether it's somebody that's actually visiting the website, whether it's somebody that's, you know, kind of filling out some information on a on a on a form on the web looking for a follow up. You know, it's it's very much in its kind of infancy, but I, I think it's going to be really interesting to track how this data correlates with with order activity, profitability, et cetera, um, as we go forward. Yeah, it's. In theory, Rick, it seems like it's a, well, again, maybe the, the conservative or pessimistic view from Kevin's standpoint, is this an early warning indicator? It's like the the tsunami mm-hmm. warning, mm-hmm. Uh, but but that doesn't have to be the case. It also can surprise to the upside in, in the data where you know, it, it, it looked like uh, 2023 might start out slower than normal. And in fact, it, it did because 21 and, and 20, and even 19, it was like the day after Christmas, website activity took off, and that didn't right. happen. But then it, it looks like we're just experiencing kind of a, a typical 2014 to, to 2018 variety spring selling season now. Uh, so it's mm-hmm. it's been really interesting to see uh, how this may or may not work as a predictive tool. But Rick, I want to give you a chance to, to talk about kind of how this product came together and mm-hmm. some of the common questions people have around security and, and questions. So. Well, the first would be like, Rick, can you just tell me individual contributors to this to this data set so I know when to buy and sell their stock or, uh, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, that it, it, it of course, people would love to know, you know, individual builders, how they're doing day to day. But what we provide is an aggregated and anonymous data set of builders across the country. And so. You know, we, we can't give you exactly what you need, maybe, uh, with regard to, you know, publicly traded companies and things like that. Um, but it does speak to the the principle, the, the, the uh, foundation of what we've built this on, which is to protect the privacy of the individual builder uh, while giving a very accurate and uh, up-to-date view of the market itself. Uh, you know, just speaking to how the market is doing, you know, users has spiked to the to the level of a 2020, 2021 in the last few days. And so you can see that uh, day to day because our data is is updated every morning. And, um, you know, just you, you mentioned how this came about uh, this, this kind of data. Uh, it's the, the predecessor to what we have now uh, was able to give uh, indicators of what the pandemic and and you know, uh, people going to their house and, and having to stay there 
what that was going to do to the market. And so you, you look at March 10th, uh, you know, 2020, uh, the market dipped as you would as you would expect. But just a week, maybe 10 days later, it spikes and you get what we uh, eventually saw in the middle end uh, of 2020 and on into 2021. And so this this kind of early detection system, I wouldn't call it an early warning system because uh, <laughs> that would denote negativity, but an early detection of what an event, whether it be raising uh, or lowering interest rates, whether it be a global pandemic, what will the market be doing uh, tomorrow? And yeah. that that's what's indicated uh, on our dashboard. And yeah. Kevin, you, you pulled it up, which is great. What do you have to say about what you're, the data you're seeing on the dashboard? What I think is really interesting is when interest rates spiked up right around here. <laughs> mm -hmm. And for those of you, I'm, I'm marking off, let me get the exact roughly like mid-February, right after the 15th mm -hmm. of the month and conversions activity in, increase, which to me is, I, I always have had this idea theory of the idea there's always more people sitting on the fence waiting to see what's happening than participating at any given time. Mm -hmm. And you can kind of see the conversion activity improving over the course of the year, but that's also as rates were slowly coming down. And you can almost imagine individuals saying, hey, well, that's great. They're heading in the right direction. Let's wait until they get back to where they were. And then, you know, they, they shoot up uh, half a point over the course of a week and wham, you can see. And, and not that this, is, this isn't the same as stock data. But in mm -hmm. terms of ideas like reverting to the mean, you see a spike, it comes back down, but it doesn't create a new low. And I right. think that's, again, just really interesting. Uh, now, now I'm, I'm much more of a visual person. I have to have a calculator with me at all times. Alan, <laughs> I know your, your perspective, and, and, and this isn't available to all organizations necessarily, but the, you just want the raw data, right? Like, you're just all about the numbers. Give, give me the data. But to me, I, I look at the charts and they and they... Because we're so, do you convert? We're so involved with builders every single day and hour. It correlates to the story that I'm hearing six, seven times a day talking to builders all the time. Whereas the the actual data itself is more valuable to people like like Alan and the team at Zellman. But also the the snapshot for the folks who are contributing, they're getting a, a free snapshot of this data. Those those uh, almost 100 builders you mentioned, they're able to get a snapshot of this every two weeks. Mm -hmm. as well uh, for, right. for, for no cost, just as participating in this. The other thing that people who are in marketing for home builders love about this data set is just having a benchmark. So when your activity is going up or down and, and ownership or, or leadership is saying, how are we doing? Can we do better? It gives you something else to point to as you know, you're asking for something that outside of price adjustments, product adjustments, uh, incentives is not realistic to occur when you consider, mm -hmm. and, and the tool lets you look at, at geographical differences as well by state or by by region, which I think has been really interesting to see, for example, how in comparison to the rest of the country, California and Washington really struggle on a conversion basis, as well as traffic. Most of the, those two states in particular, I believe, haven't seen an increase in traffic year over year, whereas most other parts of the country have. Back to you, Alan. I'm curious if there's anything about the data set that has surprised you or been just, yeah, I guess different than, than you might have originally anticipated or expected or didn't expect to be able to uncover. Yeah. I mean, listen, I think the data is, it's really interesting. One of the, the 
pieces you didn't show on there, which you know, I know uh, Rick and his team have, is actually kind of the source of the traffic to builder websites. And I find mm-hmm. that pretty interesting as well, because just directing users to a website is one piece of the pie. But I think you know what, what I've been able to ascertain from this, and I'd be curious if you agree, is that with the right advertising spend, you can get eyeballs on your website, right? And I think That's that right. um, the industry for a few years was really able to get a lot of interest without spending a whole lot on advertising. And I think what we saw late last year into early this year was builders really started to go back, you know, to kind of old school advertising and, you know, whether it's paid advertising on Facebook or other sources to direct traffic to their websites. And and that seems to have had the desired effect, which, which makes a lot of sense. So one of the things I like to look at is actually more kind of that organic traffic. How many people are just going directly to the builder website by, you know, typing in Lennar into their Google search or DR Horton into the, the web browser? Because it seems like perhaps that might be a little bit more tightly correlated with actual order activity versus somebody yeah. clicking on a Facebook banner. Completely. But again, you know, early days, but I think it's really interesting that you have that that split and that breakout there. And, uh, you know, I've certainly been, you know, pleasantly surprised that that the uh you know the conversion data um continued to show some momentum in february even as rates were going up but i think again it makes a lot of sense based on what you were talking about kevin as far as those people on the sidelines so let's let's see what it looks like in march and april i think that's going to be the real the real test here and rick you've broken it out basically organic traffic uh direct traffic which Mm -hmm. do you convert we we tell somebody coming back mostly about return visitors yep continued interest and then all other sources of traffic together, which is mostly going to be advertising related. And so uh, what right. Alan's speaking to is just kind of looking at that innate demand, which uh, again, organic is mostly going to be new, but uh, certainly a mixture of return as well. And, and direct is more return, which again, you you can kind of see organic has remained relatively flat for 2023. Direct is peaking, which again, the positive of that is people are motivated. They're looking, they're coming back. The negative is, well, that that could be not pulling forward demand, but it's like we, we got to keep replenishing those people with with new ones at the same time. Clearing at the funnel a little bit. Clearing exactly. At the funnel and a bit. and to, to the organic demand, Rick, you've also built a geographic chart to show this. But like when I hover over year over year, organic change is nationally only down about 1.2%. But if I hover over Texas, it's down 19.6%. And right. so- Speaking to those differences, whereas Ohio is only down 2.8. And a lot of that having to do with either perceived or real affordability challenges or uh, availability of inventory, um, all those things seem to be to be stacking up. So, And another added way to, to take a look at it, because we look at it as, you know, you're looking at it through a prism and, and if you line it the right way, then you can find what it is that you need. But geographic definition helps. But you can also vary what you're comparing as far as the timeline is concerned. Is it the 30 days previous to the last year's 30 days, this month, the last month? So we offer an opportunity to compare the timeline that would be best for you to, to really discern what it is that you're trying to find. Yep. And the, the final piece that I think is important to highlight is we're tracking users here, right, Rick? Not not sessions or or page views. Correct. And so when we talk about like for the last 30 days, this data set has... 4.3 million uh, users that are that are being accounted for. Now there might be duplication of users uh, looking at multiple builders, right? So if I'm if I'm looking at three different builders who all contribute to this data set, that user could be counted three times. 
And the, mm-hmm. the map functionality also important to note, uh, and then we'll, then we'll wrap here, is that it's based on where the user is located, not where the builder is doing business. So I might be a builder in Ohio, but if my data is pulling in lots of uh, reload traffic from New York and California, it will, it will show where the consumer is located. So a lot of times people are mm-hmm. looking at like the state of Texas and they're like, wow, that's a lot of data in Texas. And it is because there's, uh, I think, over a dozen builders contributing that, that do business there. But also there's a lot of people in Texas who are looking for homes all over the place <laughs> as well. So, all right. Any final thoughts about the back half of the year, Alan? So I, again, I lived through the GFC, so that's why I use words like uh, early warning signal and, and the rest because uh, still some of that PTSD, although it was the best time of my career overall, I would still say it seems like rates have to go higher and costs aren't really coming down. Those two things combined with, the narrative that a lot of people are saying is, hey, we made it. Whew, we're through it. Almost like we're yeah. forgetting about the seasonality of the business, that the spring is always better than the rest of the year. Yeah. You know, we, we recently hosted a, uh, um, a webinar with a few private builder CEOs and uh, one of the, the gentlemen on it, Matt Zace from the New Home Company, who used to be at a public uh, company. You know, he, he joked that uh, we had selling seasons in 2008, 9, and 10 also. Um, so yep. this is kind of the easiest trap you could potentially fall in. That being said, you know, listen, I think that there are certain things that are benefiting the new home market right now that probably the biggest one is just the very tight resale inventory picture. So I yeah. do believe that builders right now are taking you know a larger piece of the pie given um, kind of the lack of, of resale inventory and going back to the data you showed earlier, people staying in their homes longer, kind of trapped in their homes with low mortgage rates, that's probably going to continue for, for a while. So, you know, I think right now the, the builders are doing a good job of kind of navigating all those cross currents. But what, what ultimately would, would kind of make me a bit cautious heading into the back half of the year is we're starting to now hear some anecdotes and examples of builders doing things to actually intentionally slow sales again. Um, and mm-hmm. we heard it, you know, it's a little yeah. bit like deja vu from a year ago, whether that's limiting lot releases, whether that's starting to raise prices again. And, you know, to me, that just feels like we never really fixed the root cause of this problem here. And, uh, yeah. you know, it's probably a scenario where you're likely going to be dealing with labor constraints again, cost inflation again. And we're in this circular spiral here of, of trying to fight the, the inflation bugaboo, at least in housing, right? Like that's, that's what we focus on every day. And housing right. was starting to show some relief. And I think people were really you know, um, interpreting those green shoots, you know, positively that the Fed was approaching an end of their tightening cycle. And now we're starting to see the earlier signals that perhaps it's moving in the wrong direction again. And that that, that would lead me a little bit cautious. (laughs) I talked to a builder from Austin on Monday and they've been raising prices on their inventory almost since uh, the middle of January to slow sales because inventory is selling out faster than they anticipated. And then at the same right. time, they were deciding not to replace inventory that was selling for months and months and months because of concern about the macro. And then all of a sudden, they they just released 60 homes to start construction all at <laughs> once versus piece. So again, you're just creating this other wave right. uh, and lack of even flow among the trades. And and the and I think that's I just keep coming back to the bullwhip effect is is what we're experiencing of we we're going to keep having this choppiness back and forth for who knows how long, hopefully. Hopefully not too many years, but, but land to me, Alan, to, to close out and then Rick, any final thoughts you have is, is also the thing where we're, 
the the vintage to use VC terminology uh, here for for the yeah. land world is the, the the vintage of lots that were acquired after the GFC the, that started running out in 2015 2016 and and some some people maybe even got raw land and are are still taking advantage of that but man a lot all this land that was absorbed and put under contract over the last three years when those new neighborhoods start coming through that that's just I've never seen more new community launches, Alan, coming down the pike. And each one of those has kind of a built-in assumption around absorption that, that it's just going to be really interesting to see because if the builder hasn't reset to market when they launch, anyway, just any thoughts on the land side to close out? Yeah. I mean, listen, land activity was, was very strong. Um, in 21 and 22. And, you know, at least from the public home builder standpoint, probably one of the things that might mitigate this to some extent is, you know, the way they've been tying up land, you know, that they generally are tying up lots through option contracts first and hold it in option, you know, until the land is fully developed and then, you know, decide whether it makes sense to move forward with it. So a lot of the communities that are opening up now in 23 and even into 24, if you kind of you know, backtrack a little bit, right? I mean, we've seen development timelines extend to 18 months on average, you know, probably pushing close to two years in some cases. So the 23 community openings are going to be, you know, land that was probably tied up somewhere in 20, you know, 21, where we saw significant inflation really accelerating on the land side, kind of back half of 21 into the first part of 22. And I think that that's going to be more of the, the late 24, 25 um, communities that come online. So there's still probably decent cost bases that come through here for the next year or so. That being said, um, every lot that gets delivered now from this point forward um, will come at a higher cost basis than the home that was sold yesterday. So that's going to be a challenge, even as lumber costs are going down, or maybe there's some relief in other areas. You know, lot costs are going to be going to be higher, and builders will have to either accept a lower margin on that or try to push that inflation onto the consumer through a higher home price. Makes total sense. Also, uh, final piece of thought for me, and then I'll let Rick close us out. I know I keep saying this, but you're both so (laughs) smart and fun to hang out with. I can't looking at the 12 year average of how long people stay in a home. And also one of the objections you're likely to get as a builder when you're running out of inventory is, well, I don't want to wait or there's some unknowns and maybe I'll look at an existing home. If someone tells you that they're considering existing, the the new version of that script for that I referenced for back from 03 would be, do you want to settle? Because you know, you know, you might tell yourself you're just going to be in that home for a little bit and then you'll then you'll find something that's a better fit for you when the market shifts. But on average, people are going to stay in the home they choose for 12 years. And so thinking about that, does waiting six to eight months for the home to be built exactly as you desire? Is that that's not a bad trade-off when you think about the fact that you're probably going to be there for 12 years. All right, Rick. Uh, sorry, can't yeah. can't get the educator out of me. I got to drop something. <laughs> no, uh, I like hearing it, and I appreciate being being with you guys today. It's always yeah, good to hear. Yeah. So, if people want to see an example of of how home builder data works, or talk to you about uh, potentially contributing, so that they can get access uh, of that Absolutely. free data set as well. How does that work? Yeah, I would just tell them to go to our our website, homebuilderdata.com. Uh, you can take a look there. You can uh, reach out to us through the website and we'd be happy to talk with you, give you a tour of the dashboard. Uh, you can see if you, if you only have a few minutes, you can take a look at a video that we have of the dashboard, take that tour. And if you have any further interest, let us know. We'd, we'd love to talk with you. But 
Rick, correct me if, if I'm, I'm wrong, but home builder data is just a provider of data. So if you want analysis or insight or what does all this mean, don't call me, don't call Rick, <laughs> call Alan call and the Alan. team at Zellman. That's right. There you go. Yeah, zellmanassociates.com. Shoot me an email, Alan, A-L-A-N, at zellmanassociates.com. If you're a home builder, uh, as I mentioned, we, uh, we do monthly surveys where in exchange we provide our research for free to uh, builders in the industry. So uh, feel yeah. free to reach out if, uh, if that's of interest. Awesome. Thank you both for joining us. We'll see you again soon. Thanks, Kevin. Great. Thanks Great for discussion. Me. Thanks, Rick. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Market Proof Marketing. Can't wait for the next one or looking to connect with other new home marketers? Become a member of our private community, DYC All Access, which is 100% free and always will be. Get exclusive content not shared anywhere else, access to private events, and the ability to join a marketing impact group with other marketers like you around the country. Visit our link in the show notes or members.doyouconvert.com to join. All opinions expressed by me, Andrew Peak, Jackie Lipinski, and our castmates are solely our own opinions. Now get to work and make sure your company is market proof. <laughs> <laughs>